Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or RO, is a community of wellbeing managers from organizations around the globe. At RO, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving well-being in your workplace, professional development is key. These discussions on workplace well-being are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars. Over the next little while, we'll be exploring diversity and inclusion as part of our podcast series. This episode explores inclusive well-being from a Māori worldview. When it comes to well-being, inclusivity is important. An inclusive, diverse workplace culture fosters a sense of belonging, safety and purpose for employees, which in turn helps to increase well-being and productivity. It improves social connectedness and belonging and reduces discrimination, prejudice and harassment. It supports people to bring their whole selves to work. Joining us is Stacey Morrison, one of New Zealand's most recognisable broadcasters across radio and TV. She and her husband, Scotty Morrison, co-wrote Māori at Home to help other families use te reo in everyday settings. And Stacey's first children's book, My First Words in Māori, became a number one bestseller. We'll be exploring some of the cornerstones of wellbeing from this perspective, alongside barriers and myths and actions that workplaces can take to ensure wellbeing programs are truly inclusive. And thank you so much for joining us today. I'm just listening to your voices, uh, seeing your faces, listening to what you do. And I think, oh, yeah, these are my people. These are good people. And I really appreciate the energy and time and effort it takes to join us today. So if it's okay, I'd actually like to offer a karakia first of all. Uh, this is a very simple karakia. It won't be 40 minutes long, but it's actually one that was composed by my husband, Scotty Morrison, who's kind of set it off into the world and anyone can use it uh, with safety and know the source, which is always a good thing, I think. And so this karakia achieves in a, a very short time the, the channeling of energy. So what we're asking in this karakia, which is an incantation, I know people might say blessing or prayer, but probably I'd say incantation and affirmation are probably the closest terms that I like to describe what karakia are. And so this karakia summons from above, from below, and whoever you recognise above, by the way, from below, from our whenua, from within us and from the surrounding environment, uh, the energy of everyone present and brings it together with vitality and with unity. So all of that will happen in a very short time. So that's it. That's my offering. And I hope that somehow you could feel even across our screens uh, that it, it does have this purpose of bringing us together. And I'm really glad to join you today from my daughter's bedroom. Um, those are my iwi. And from my mother's side, my whanau came from England only in the 1950s. So I'm pretty much a treaty relationship and treaty partnership sitting in front of you. I don't exist without those two sides. In terms of my mahi, I have been a broadcaster in television and radio since I was a teenager, which is a really long time ago. But people 
somehow still remember that I was on What Now when I was at high school and worked in lots of different TV shows as a director and producer, research behind the scenes, radio. Currently, I'm on the hits in the afternoon. But, you know, because I only have three children, multiple jobs, I also write books. Really fortunately, because the journey that my husband and I have been on as second language learners of Māori has informed us that it's not easy. And so we actually wanted to make offerings of resources that would help uh, Fano. So we've kind of targeted each one. For instance, Māori made easy to be 30 minutes a day, an easy way to acquire language that doesn't require you to be any place, any particular time, and then an audio book to support that. Māori at Home, which is what both of us wrote to, to talk about how we can bring te reo Māori into our everyday lives. My first words are Māori for little babies. And I've just released with Jeremy Sherlock a book called Kia Kaha, a storybook of Māori who changed the world. And that's actually about amplifying visible heroes who are Māori because my experience of growing up is that I could learn about a lot of people who are amazing and those people were never Māori. And so as a young Māori woman, you take that on board and I, I took that to me and so does where do I, where do I, where am I included, I guess, when it comes to stories of, of excellence of people that I can see who are like me? Do we get to be heroes? So that book is, I guess, just a, another offering to the world. It's funny because when people talk about what we do, I'm really mindful. There's a few people who think we're just empire building, but actually we thought it would be that one cute time that we wrote a book and no one bought it, but we t- we sort of ticked it off the bucket list. But it's just ended up that simultaneously society has changed, expectations of what it means to be Māori, what our place is, what all of us can be a part of in terms of te reo Māori and te ao Māori has changed. So I can see how our the offerings that we've made have kind of reflected what's happening in society at the time, whether we were clever enough to anticipate that or not. <laughs> that's been the reality. Not either how wide or better. That's quite a long intro, but hopefully it gives you a perspective. But if you ask me first and foremost who, who I am, I am a descendant of my peoples, but also a mother and a wife. And those are the central pole, the central elements of my life that offer me well-being and and I do what I do because I can because of them and if anything changes then the rest of the world has to change for me as well. And what I love about that Stacey is that real sense of of richness across the different domains in your life and how they all link together and it probably leads really nicely into the first question which is and you and I talked about this in our early discussion but what well-being actually means from a Māori worldview and I wonder if you could elaborate on that. So first of all, it will mean different things to different Māori people and it's important that in our connection and our collective nature, we don't assume that there's only one way of being. But one thing about te ao Māori is that it, it is holistic in nature. So the interconnectedness of things is very central to a Māori worldview. So probably many of you will know about Te Whare Tapawha, which is the Māori model for health that Sir Mason Jury created. And its brilliance is in its simplicity because people can always 
seem to relate to the fact that, yes, we talk about ourselves as a whare, as a, as a house, and that, first of all, we start with our foundation, which is the whenua. And then the things that keep our whare standing strong are our taha tinana, so that is our physical well-being, taha wairua, which is our spiritual well-being, our taha whānau, which is our social well-being and our whānau uh, connections in life, and also taha, oh, sorry, taha henengaro or taha henengaro, so your mental health as well. So mental health and physical health are things we talk about in well-being quite generally, but taha whānau, so the social side and how you are connected with your whānau, and also taha wairua, the spiritual side, are probably things that aren't included in well-being so naturally when we're talking about from definitely in a corporate sense. And I, I can see how that's an interesting challenge, but when we talk about spirituality, that's not necessarily a, a conversation about religion. It's about respecting beliefs of people and respecting and understanding and honouring that your spirituality and your spirit is part of you. And that's why it's part of your wellness. And then the whenua and, and your foundation is a really important element of that, I think, to know that where you come from, and, and so one of you was generous enough to offer that you, you live with trauma and that you're healing from trauma. And so that tells me something about how your foundation was laid and what impacted that. So those are kind of examples of how when we look at whare tapafa as a really good accessible model of Māori health, that's why he's so clever. That's why he's Sir Mason Jury. That is why he's so brilliant. He's actually in the latest book that I wrote, and I was really intimidated because I admire him so much. But he was so kind. Because I wrote this book for, for kids, he said, that's actually the most intelligible bio I've ever read about myself. So it's not an effusive kind of compliment, but it, I'm just going to live on that forever. That meant a lot to me because in its simplicity is its brilliance. Mm. And I think, sorry, you had to continue there, but I, I know when you spoke down here in Queensland, you talked about the intergenerational connections as well. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, the, the importance of that, because that's perhaps something in a workplace we can, we can forget. Yeah, in terms of intergenerational connections to your whānau? Yeah. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> so in being Māori, you know when we do pepeha and we say, you know, we name our maunga, we name our awa, uh, we name our marae, we name our people. So in that way, that tells you about your place in the world, that before you, there were all these things and they contribute to you and they are part of your existence and, and your place in the world. But it also reminds you that there was a world before you and that that is something to be grateful for and to remind yourself in your humility to have your individual experience, but you are always part of a collective. So I guess when we talk about intergenerational healing, and I'll talk about this in the context of Te Reo Māori, the healing that I sought and that I knew deep down somehow that I needed was the healing of the reclamation of Te Reo Māori in our ancestral tongue, in our whānau. And part of that was an, a desire to heal the generation after me, so my tamariki. So in that way of giving them what I believe is their birthright as their native and heritage language, 
the intergenerational healing takes place because that was not part of my father's life. That was not something he felt proud or strong about, and it's not even language that he's been able to reclaim as yet at 66 years old. Even my power, my grandfather, he was an affluent speaker, but my great-great-grandfather was. So in one generation, it can be lost, and it can take three to get back. So the healing there is not just from me to my tamariki, but I believe from my tamariki, the mokopuna of my dad healing him as well. So the when we say intergenerational, it's not linear. It's not one way. It is reciprocated across the generations. So I feel grateful for that. And my, my dad is very proud. He's quite sooky, <laughs> um, but he's very proud to have had that experience of some of his mokopuna, being able to speak to his mother in her native tongue before she passed. And, yeah, those are one of those sort of heart-catching moments where you go, wow, this, we really did this. This happened. Yeah, and because I knew that there was healing, and even without naming the scars, I knew that there was healing needed. Yeah. And I imagine that there'd be many people who have been through, or Māori who've been through a similar process in, in reconnecting with, you know, Māori culture with whaka, with the whakapapa, with, you know, if, especially if there's been a, a disconnect, as you say, across the generations. In the workplace, what what do you see around how how that's supported or could it be supported better? What What's happening in that space? Yeah, it's really interesting. And as I hear all of you, you know, many of you say diversity and inclusion, and those are great intentions and I understand them and I can I can participate in them for sure. And I also challenge them. So in my workplace, we have a diversity committee and I sit and I was invited and I and I do participate sometimes, but I did ask them to consider the word diversity when it is applied to Indigenous people. So as Māori, as tangata whenua, are we a diverse inclusion or are we Indigenous? So when we are included as diverse, I don't, I personally don't feel that that honours what it means to be tanga whenua. And diversity is actually addressed in Article 3 of the treaty, which ensures that everybody has an honoured place in Aotearoa, in New Zealand. So it's not about one being better than the other, but it's just that term talks about, you know, everyone being a wide range, but does it talk about our specific and unique experience in Aotearoa? Then when it comes to inclusion, I worked with the Spark Foundation and, and my chair was, I thought he had such a great response because he used to be head of commercial at Spark and he's our chair, but he doesn't work at Spark anymore, Andrew Pari. And I said, when it comes to inclusion, can we always be mindful of whose job it is to include somebody else? Because my daughter, actually was about 11 at the time, she was speaking in Māori, but you'll hear the one word in English. She said, ah, tino pauri, disincluded here. And I said, oh, so she felt excluded. And she goes, no, that's different. She said, excluded means you're leaving someone out on purpose, but disincluded means you're trying 
You want to include someone, but you don't know how to do it, so they're disincluded. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's really good. <laughs> You're 10. How did you do that? But, you know, so when it comes to, you know, when we start going DNI and all these things, I, I just always think it's worth putting in another layer of consideration. And, for instance, one role that I know that we have is cultural partnerships, and I think that works for me that it was formerly newsroom diversity, but because of the particular role that that person has, it's actually more about cultural partnerships. There's someone knocking on the door, Taylor. Koi tera. Sorry. You're all good. <laughs> Mayana Sam. Oh, this is Mayana. Mihi atu ki te hunga nei. Oh, kare tā. She's not able to get into her class. Kare tā. That's the same thing, like, oh, you can't get into the Google class, you're going to have to wait for your teacher, you're asking to join, and I don't know why they don't usually do that. Yeah, so... It's never to undermine or criticise the banner term. It's just I think there's an opportunity to look at other ways of, of, of talking about this, but also as long as our practice actually means that everyone can be involved, then, then I think that's fine. I was actually, I was Zooming into a hui with Ngaitahu the other day. They had a hui called Hepo Whakairo Leadership Hui, and they were talking about their values and our values. And so our iwi values are also the corporate values. And so that involves manakitanga. So manakitanga is about, I guess, it, it's one of those words you can break down, mana and aki. So mana, people probably know what that means. It, it's personal power, personal prestige, respect, all of those things. And then aki, the second part of the word, or aki aki, is to encourage and to incite. So when you encourage and incite the mana of a person, that's manakitanga. And to me, that's a great opportunity within HR if we consider the mana of every person, wherever they come from, and we manaki that, so we encourage that mana, then I think that that's a way that we can talk about our values, our purpose, our wellness goals, actually being very unique to us in Aotearoa, so in New Zealand. And I think that's so important what you talked about is, is really getting to understand it, really kind of opening up the layers and, and not taking, so talked about before, almost a tokenistic approach. And, and that was one thing that I was thinking about. You know, often we, we use te whara perhaps in organisations when we're referring to, to a wellbeing model. But, you know, how do we avoid making sure it's a surface level and, and actually dig deep and make it sure that people do feel like it's, it's done from the heart? Yeah, so that's a really interesting and big piece of work and it requires people to step into quite a vulnerable place so it has to be safe because what we're talking about is who we believe ourselves to be as New Zealanders. So it's really important that we approach these type of topics with aroha. And then I recognise that, as I say, I don't get to say goodies, baddies because I'm both you know, like it's not as simple as that, but it's important to go who 
whose voice do we usually centre? Who do we usually listen to? Who has the most mana in our organisation? How do we show that we respect the mana of everybody in the organisation? And then to, I mean, I, I was listening, sorry, I, I can't find your name, but when you work with Ngāti Whātua Orake and that journey that you hopefully might be able to tell us a little bit more about, the engagement is a big part of why it's no longer just tokenism. It's because in engagement, like any relationship, there's interaction and navigation, negotiation about how things can work for both of us. Whereas if we just come in and we go, okay, now these are our company values and can you just translate them into Māori? And that's an example of going visually and, and on our shop front, that will, that will look pretty down. But does that reflect what's happening inside the whare? And if it doesn't, that tends to be where I've seen things fall down because if, if the inside of the whare doesn't meet doesn't match the front of the whare or what we're purporting ourselves to be, that's when people will lose trust. And that's really what it's about. It's about trusting that it is safe to bring your full self to work or that it is safe to believe in the purpose and the values of what you think your, your company is achieving. Mm. And one of the things we talked about yesterday with Jose from the Rainbow Tech was, was almost that we, we talked about as being extra bricks almost, the extra bricks that those that people from different communities carry in the workplace. And so we're saying, for example, they've become educators. They have extra stresses every day in terms of deciding even, you know, which bathroom to use, for example. Thinking mm. about that sort of from a, a, a Māori worldview, what are kind of the extra bricks that they're carrying or decisions they're making every day that perhaps some of us don't appreciate because it, that's not our worldview? Yeah, I learned some words from a, a woman that I admire who is in a corporate setting. She's very high up. And she was the one who taught me about cultural load, the cultural load that you carry and also the cultural tax that you pay. And her, her role was Māori-focused, but the expectations to do free translations. I'd love to show you my inbox during Māori Language Week. And, and it's a really, <laughs> it's a hard thing, so I want to encourage people to keep on going. But if you're thinking about this on Tuesday of Māori Language Week, you're not helping me here. And I want to encourage you, but it, it's, the, it's the way that people might just go, oh, well, you speak Māori, you could just translate it for me, forgetting that some people get paid for that. You know, and that is a, a recognised role. So she described cultural load. Sometimes it's, helping people explain something. Now, remember, this is in a foreign culture I'm trying to explain. It's, it's part of the culture of this country. And when it's visible on a world stage, uh, there's a lot of pride from what I can see. I mean, you know, when the All Blacks haka and, and when we go to the UK, remember in the olden days when we could do OEs and people would start busting out tutera manga iwi and I go, that's awesome. That's how you know you're from Aotearoa and you do that at home. So that cultural load of helping bridge people's understandings, the cultural tax, I think she described it as sometimes you, by being really out about being Māori, there's a cultural tax involved that people might regard you in different ways, which I, I have seen sometimes. And then to look at it from a, an asset 
focused way, she said also there is cultural capital. So if we value the cultural capital that people have, then we start to minimise the cultural tax they're paying and the cultural load they're having to carry without recognition because we have recognised their cultural capital. And I think that's really key because that's almost the difference, isn't it, between, say, offering some well-being things that seem nice and I'm going to be you know, facetious here and say a yoga class or a fruit bowl and actually going, what are the things that are stressful or that add to that, that cultural load, for example, you know, that you're experiencing every day? So what are some things workplaces can do to, one, you know, almost elevate that the Māori worldview is part of their wellbeing programs, but also make sure that it does it does feel like something from the heart and something that is already addressing the issues that the Māori face day to day? I guess education, mana and opportunity. So education is a way for everyone to feel like they can participate so that they're not stumbling over words. And I can see that look in people's eyes when they go, and so now we're going to have a, and then you can see their eyes go, oh, no, I'm going to have to say the Māori word in front of her. And actually I'm there cheering for them, but they've just, you know, projected an anxiety that I might say it's wrong. But actually if the intention's good, it's fine. And they'll say, we'll have a whakatau. And they go, cool, awesome. So having that education, having the mana, so that's putting the value on this Māori language, understanding and knowledge, and then having an opportunity. So an opportunity to use that language to make it a living part of your organisation. So I've been involved in a few of these processes. And first of all, you have to have the people who can make the decisions engaged. And if they're not, it's like if you're going to a school and we propose to have a Māori unit at the school that's closest to us because we would love our kids to be able to walk to school. And the principal wasn't into it. And if the principal wasn't into it, everything becomes hard. And it's the same in a workplace. If the bosses aren't into it, it's really hard. But when you have a CEO that is engaged and, for instance, willing to go to a treaty training, then you go, okay, the trust is building. My belief in the authenticity of your desire to include this is growing. So those kind of actions are actually really powerful. And I think I celebrate them and I respect the effort that people put into it. And I do think that there's an enrichment that comes for the whole organisation that can be worthwhile. And now there's also actually commercial reasons why this needs to happen. People are realising, man, if we're not doing this well, say if you're at the ministry or if you're in these organisations where the expectations of you culturally are higher, then there is a different tax to pay and that you're not considered for certain roles or contracts that you otherwise would be. So it's a really fascinating time. It's a time that we will probably look back at and go, wow, that was a lot. So we actually need to keep the communication lines open and that's now, that's what we call wānanga, like to have discussion, to be in settings where we talk like this, where we are open about our, our questions, that we feel safe, that we can ask questions that might be considered silly, that's the education piece, that we have the mana that will be respected, that we have turned up and that we have the opportunity to actually be in those places. 
Wonderful. And we've got one more question to ask and then we'll jump to the discussion. So get your questions prepared, everyone. And we're really just thinking, so for those who are here, you know, obviously really keen to be allies, to be supporters and, and to be leaders as you were talking to them. As an individual, what are some of the things that we can do in the workplace to make sure that, you know, we are really embracing Māori? Yeah. So just like when we express who we are, how some of you said, you know, kia ora, ko Stacey, tōko ingwa, you know, all of those things that we do to bring visibility and oral visibility to the language tells people that it's safe. So that's part of it, is and to engage in your own education. And it's totally fine to do it behind the scenes. It's it's totally fine to go, I just want to get a bit better before I do it publicly. That's absolutely fine. So that's one way that you can do it. And there's a confidence that comes from knowing that you've put some yards in. It's like when you turn up to do like a fun run, like I did in Queenstown last year. I was like, this is not fun because I haven't trained and I'm already judging myself and I already feel like I'm going to fail. I'm projecting my failure and I'm going to, and, and I did because I knew I hadn't put the work in. Whereas if you have put the work in like I did in Nōturua, I was like, I'm just going to enjoy this. And I, I just ran along on a high because I'd put the work in. So I would say that putting the work in, putting in the background, background research, thinking about what actually your company needs to achieve, but also who, who you want to be, what you want to bring to that table. I think that is the first step. But also just engaging in these sort of conversations, the fact that you turned up today and that you want to listen and and hopefully ask some questions. Those are the intention and turning up with in heartedness, being willing to do whakawhanaungatanga to, to build relationships and get to know each other. They're all important things. Really important. Um, just, it's fantastic, Sassy. Thank you so much. It's really been interesting to understand those different perspectives and to start already my brain's thinking, oh gosh, there are all these things that you know, we're half doing but not really doing, <laughs> doing well. Yeah. But that's okay too because I guess if we think about a story and, and one, one thing that is hard is if we have been schooled in New Zealand, I think we have every right to go, hey, wait a minute, I don't think we got everything there. So sometimes we have to address what we thought we knew to be true. So as an example, I I talk about how at school I was taught about my own ancestor, James Robinson Clough, who was English because he was the first settler to row down the Avon River. But there was no mention of Puai to Haiwa, his wife, and then all of us who descend from that line. It was just the thing that is valuable here is that he was a settler and he rode down a river that had already been rode down by other people, but importantly, he was an English settler. You know, so so let's be critically aware of what has impacted our understanding of, of the, the story of New Zealand and, and the value of Māori narratives. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R-O-W wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again. And we look forward to catching up with you really soon.